we would love to go in, have the business partner say, here's my task, here's my baseline performance, you know, let's see if this is viable, if you can increase performance upon this baseline by X percent or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I've ever seen an instance where that happens in real life. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Catherine Hume runs Borealis AI, which is the AI arm of the Royal Bank of Canada. And so she works on a slew of machine learning applications that we get into. But also, she has a background in comparative literature and speaks Latin. And that's surprisingly relevant to the work that she does and to our conversation and to find out why you're going to need to listen to this one. All right. So why don't we start with um, with what you work on? You see, you have like a really interesting job and an interesting organization. Maybe you could um, describe it and talk about what um, a day in the life is like. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so I, I lead up a group called Borealis AI, which is the machine learning research lab for the Royal Bank of Canada. Um, for those listening in the States or outside of Canada, you might not know of it, but it's actually the largest bank in Canada. And I think it's the ninth largest bank in the world. So it's a pretty big shop. There's like 90,000 employees in the company. Um, and Borealis was founded in 2016 as just the ML, you know, the ML research center for the bank. And so day to day uh, in my team, um, I think, like many other ML shops, we learned over the years that it takes more than just scientists to really make ML uh, production ML systems work. So we've got a group of machine learning scientists. We have um, M ML engineers who do a lot of the work in building, taking the code from the scientists and really building out production ML systems. Um, we have product managers who I, you know, do what product managers do, figure out what we should build and really collaborate to make sure we ship things on time. And then we have a group of business development experts who work with our business partners. So kind of in the bank, there's like, mini markets, if you will. Mm -hmm. There's the retail bank, which works with people like you and I. So, you know, checking accounts, savings accounts. Um, there's wealth managers who help manage people's assets. And then there's capital markets, which is sort of the institutional investing. And so they partner with those various teams and um, help us find ML use cases. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and could you describe what those use cases are? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll talk about some of the some of the products that we've worked on and, you know, various use cases that we see. So it's a broad variety, um, I'd say, of, of applications. If we go into the retail bank, so things that are helpful for people like you and I, mm -hmm. um, one of our recent applications was a cash flow forecasting application for day-to-day -day customers. So this is probably there's lots of customers out there who have missed a bill payment or potentially overdrawn their account and gotten fees from the bank for having like insufficient funds in their account. Mm -hmm. So we built something that's trying to predict um, upcoming payments in the next seven days. So we stuck at a target of about a week out to give people reminders that say, hey, this thing is coming. Mm -hmm. um, you might want to you know, either pay it now or take different kinds of actions in managing, moving money from savings to checking, et cetera, to you know, be able to cover those expenses. Wow, um, is that really live? That really works. Yeah, I've never gotten live. a message like that from my bank. Maybe I should <laughs> switch banks. It's live as of maybe a month ago we went into production. So it's really new. Oh, um, how cool. But yeah, that's that's one of the latest ones we put out. And uh, it's an interesting ML problem because like it, these, so if we think about gen, like ML models, they're going to take a series of time series data, things that you've paid in the past, and then try to generalize a prediction. So what's that going to look like in the future? But if you have something like, say it's your electricity bill, your phone bill, my phone provider decides every once in a while that they're going to increase my rate arbitrarily. And I don't know why this is coming, but it just happens. And it's like, it goes from, you know, $75 a month to $85 a month. And I have to just pay that extra, you know, extra fee. So, um, so one of the cool things in our model was we, we needed to use an intention mechanism so as to basically not overgeneralize that trend, right? So it's like, it's not going to see that there's, it's 75, 75, 75, 85, 85, and then imagine that three months later, it's going to go to 95. We had to sort of correct for those kind of stepwise changes that a provider might make that, you know, an algorithm might incorrectly generalize as a trend. So that was one of the many micro nuances to actually making this thing work. That's cool. Or like your energy bill might go up in the winter, or I guess in the summer, if you're in a hot place, right? Yeah, there's a lot with seasonality for sure. Yeah. And so you can't just take like the average trend over a year or else you're going to end up with I don't know, somewhere in the midpoint in September when it's actually, you know, a ton to be more stepwise. 
Yeah. And can you talk about like how you came to make that? I mean, I, I always, I guess I always assumed that banks kind of liked charging really high um, overdraft fees and would kind of want you to maybe do that. But I guess that's wrong. How did you um, kind of come up with that as uh, like working with the business to know the business wants that and then also realizing that's a feasible ML problem that you could actually solve? I was actually quite proud of this. So at, uh, at the Royal Bank of Canada, there's a little bit of like a, it might have to do with the Canadian banking mindset, but there's part of it is, you know, be profitable institution, but then equal in part is sort of be like a good citizen, like be good to the Canadian citizens. And so um, slightly different than in some of the US environment in that the Canadian population is, is very, it's not underbanked. So underbank is a term that we use for people who are not within the sort of recognized banking system. So like a Chase customer, a Bank of American customer, a Morgan Stanley customer. I think in the US, I don't know exactly what the statistics are, but it's something like 30-ish percent of the population is actually not using a a bank, like a registered bank. So Mm -hmm. they use things like payday loans and sort of like the sort of on the side type um, banking products. But in Canada, I think it's like 98% of the population actually is in the main banking community which then has implications for sort of social responsibility from these pretty large institutions because you've got the whole population represented. So I think I found it quite promising that like the, ex- the you know, the executives making the businesses, executives making the decisions um, were felt that it would be better for customer loyalty to provide a service that helped versus like do this sort of nickel and diming on these kind of fees. Um, uh-huh. Finding the use case, it's always an iteration. Uh, so I think in the ideal, like coming from the academic ML world, we would love to go in, have the business partner say, here's my task. Here's my baseline performance. You know, let's see if this is viable. If you can increase performance upon this baseline by X percent or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever seen an instance where that happens in real life. Um, and so it's more like, hey, we have this idea. What do you guys think? And then mm-hmm. we're like, all right, let's play around with some of the data and see what we can find and see if like there is a there there. And so we'll come and we'll say, all right, we think this is the task. And then, you know, it's like, what time frame do you need? And so we, when we originally started this, I thought cash flow was like six months out. And then the, you know, our partners were like, no, 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 one week. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that helped. Um, you know, so there was sort of iterations on just narrowing down, yeah, the scope of the prediction, um, what qualified as decent performance. So, I often find with the business, like the prep, the preferences, it's accurate every time. Um, <laughs> that you know, would be the preference. It's absolutely. Yeah. The preference <laughs> right. is always like, actually, there's no machine learning involved. And this is just a rules-based <laughs> system that works like clockwork. Um, so then it's sort of iterations where it's, all right, well, what if, you know, this edge case, the prediction is off? Like, what might that, what might, how might that impact customer experience? And it's sort of like iterative negotiation to get to the point of, yeah, we're comfortable with this as like a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's sort of the selling and pitching and telling the story, getting various, the various people involved, um, to get it to market. And, uh, I'd say with our group too, since we're a machine learning team, but we partner with other groups in the bank that do design, you know, that do like, uh, just a lot of the sort of ticks, like ticking the boxes around all the business processes. There's a lot of back and forth and stakeholder management to, to really get something live as well. And and what ended up, I'm just curious, what ended up being like the level of accuracy that you could get with that sort of seven day prediction if, you know, I'm going to overcharge my account? It varied per payment type. So if you had a pre-approved payment, so like your Spotify, you know, mm-hmm. subscription or whatever, yeah. it was quite high accuracy. To, and also the day, like the day that the payment would come out was quite high. So we had a multi-objective um, supervised learning algorithm that predicted the one task was how much and the second task was when. Um, and so with those, it could get pretty high. I think within three days range, we were at, I don't remember, I think it goes into down to like 88 or 89%. If it was no, sorry, within three days, it was up to 98. And if it were the exact day, it was more like 88, 89. Hmm. Um, so with those pre-approved, it was quite high. Once we got into things like loan payments, um, anything that's sort of an arbitrary e-transfer, like a Venmo payment, those are harder. Because there's just not a lot of, like, predictive, um, what, like, there's more variability. There's not that kind of, like, just standardization. Uh, so, yeah, so varied per payment type. Um, but sometimes it was as high as, like, 98, and then it would skew down to about, like, in the, in the high 80s. Mm. 
And you were using an attention, a model that included attention. It sounds like a lot of machinery for, for this kind of problem. Did, did that really matter? Did it do much better than like a simpler baseline? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I pose the same question to the team and being like, <laughs> wow, this is a lot of machinery for this kind of problem. Um, I think it came down to, again, the seasonal variability. It's like there's, you'd imagine that it's something where it's like, it seems like it could just be a pretty, a pretty standard approach. But um, yeah, just with those, with these things that creep up like seasons, like variation in payment time for mm. per individual. So some people are like, they've set up automated stuff and the minute it goes, it's, it comes. Other people, they haven't, so they do it manually and there'll be these like lags and when they pay. And so that implica- has implications not only on this thing is due, but like how that impacts their balance. So, so once you get into the details, it becomes more um, messy and, you know, needs more machinery. Yeah. Can you describe some of the other applications that that seems like such a surprising and cool one, but like, what are kind of the main like bread and butter, like bank applications of, of ML? I want to talk about another cool one. Oh yeah. Before right, I, cool yeah. Right, I want do to do cool another one cool first. one. I'll do a cool one first. Yeah. So another um, it's, this one is really artful because it's, you have to scope it down really small, but it's cool. So it's using reinforcement learning for trade execution. So here's the problem. Um, Imagine you're a big hedge fund and you trade every day, right? You just come into the equities markets and you're like, you order millions of orders of some sort of stock and you trade it through the day. So the question at hand is, um, you come in, you decide that you want to execute a million orders of Google shares over the course of the day. Stock market opens at nine, closes at 4.30. The problem, the question is, how do you distribute that order optimally throughout the day so as to achieve your desired uh, returns targets. So there's a common historical algorithmic approach to solving this problem, which is called a VWAP algorithm. VWAP stands for volume weighted average price. So it's the average price of the stock throughout the day weighted by the volume that's traded, right? As, mm-hmm. as the name suggests. Um, I don't know when this these kind of algorithms came into being, but I think they're like, like date back to the 90s or something. Wait, so sorry, sorry to interrupt. It, it, that's a, that seems like it would be a number. Is that, how is that an algorithm? It's an, so it's an, it's a curve. It's a number, but it's a number. If you, if you trace it throughout the day that that it'll change slightly. Right. Um, so the algorithm we took was what trades do you place to hit that number? Oh, I see. Right. So, so, um, and you can like, I won't go into the complexities of how the limit order system works, but effectively think, do I sell, hold or buy the stock? Right. Um, Uh It's not exactly that, but I think for the sake of like, we don't have to go into this arcane detail. Um, You could buy or sell or hold. Right. So there's, this is why where reinforcement learning comes in. You have a a sequence of a couple of kinds of actions. Um, Okay. You might sell, you might, you know, you might buy, but yeah, you're, you're trading stocks during the day. Okay. And so what would the simple algorithm be? Because you don't know what the stock price is going to be, right? You don't know what the stock price is going to be, but the simple algorithm, um, from what I understand, is you've got historical price curves, how the stock performed yesterday, two Uh weeks ago, a month ago, et cetera. So Uh you'll use that to make a guess on how much you should buy at a certain time of the day um, in order to achieve your, your target goals, the target money-making goals that you have for the day. Okay. Um, so, but the, so the algorithm basically releases like buys or holds, right? Or doesn't release. And it, and it makes, and it, it partitions that um, at timestamps, okay. you know, at 9am, I'm going to do X at 9.15. What you don't want to do is say it's, if it's a large order, like a million orders of stock, if at 9am you say buy a million, <laughs> um, <laughs> that has a, big impact on the market price and it'll sort of shake things off. Right. So, so you try to like, you try to dose it, you know, just a little bit at a time. Um, so what, without disrupting the ship, right. With keeping, keeping the market relatively stable. Cause there's good, you're the one, you're one of the participants, but there's going to be however many others on the exchange at that time. Uh Um, so what, what we did here is we said, can we, we're trying to hug that number, that curve, that number, right. So the, the, that the price number across these time stamps. Um, what we said is, could we use reinforcement learning to optimally distribute dose our buy decisions mm-hmm. to stay as close as possible to that curve? Um, so the value function was basically just minimize the distance. We can observe that number. Sorry, the curve is the volume? 
The curve is the average price weighted per volume. It's the price weighted by the volume. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and you want the curve to do what? What you want to do, there's a trading strategy where you want to, you want to hit that curve. So you want to sell or buy in such a way that the price that you arrive at matches that curve. Exactly. And does it work? Yeah. And the cool thing is it works. Uh, it works quite well, even when there's a lot of volatility in the market. Um, so in March of 2020, when COVID hit, uh, there's, it was just much more like volatile than it, than the stock market normally was. And sure. what was nice is it, it adapted. I don't know the exact time it took to adapt and like nonetheless get superior trading returns. Um, it may have taken a day. It may have taken a couple of weeks. I'm not, I'm not sure on that time frame, but um, I know that it adapted much better than like a standard trading algorithm would. And I guess you're constantly retraining the algorithm then. Constantly retraining the algorithm and uh, a different team, not our team now, but the team that now like owns that algorithm are working on um, adapting the task to different kinds of trading styles. So not this hug that that VWAP curve that I described, but there's there's other like approaches and strategies that one could take when trading. Uh-huh. Um, and they're you know they're retuning it to, to see if it could it could work there. I think it's a, there's a lesson though in reinforcement learning, and that it's not you can't just you know scale it to a new use case. It requires significant effort to <laughs> write a new algorithm, you know, that will work with a different task. So right, right, yeah. interesting. So what are the other what are the other kind of um, important applications to you? Yeah, so other more bread and butter applications. Um, or other cool ones, I guess, if you got other ones you want to talk about. There's another cool one we could talk about down the line that's, that's a little less related to banking. I, I like to think about it this way. So what does a bank do? A bank um, takes in money at one rate. So you put money in your checking and savings account, and it loans out money at a different interest rate, and it makes money on the spread, right? That's kind of basically what a bank does. Um, that's... there. Historically, when banks have used models, statistical models, to decide how much they should lend to a given customer, um, you know, they, there's there's plenty of background like background models that are using linear regressions, et cetera, to do this. Um, but there's a lot of opportunities to sort of upgrade some of those decisions using ML with uh, more data, different types of data, um, but sort of the basics of who should we give a loan to. How much should that loan be? What is the risk that the person will, uh, we, that we incur, that the person might default on this loan? If they do default, um, when should we call them? Um, you know, how, how like, ranking that ordered queue. Um, there's, there's, like, process optimization. You know, how do we, like, we have our call center. Very often we go on to our, especially today we have digital banking. You go on, your password doesn't work. You know, something happens. You're stuck. You have to call somebody. Um, there's a lot of applications in call center automation. You know the conversational AI work, um, automating some of that queue, rank ordering queues. Whose call should we take uh, first to approach this? There's which product. You know banks often have a series of products. Which product offering do we send to which customer next? Mm-hmm. Um, those are kind of more standard industry problems. I think that exists everywhere. It's not unique to banking. Sort of the like next best product offering optimization. And do you, you work on all those problems? You're, you're we don't saying? work on all those problems, no. We work I on see. a sub, we do a lot of work in credit, uh, but there's there's other teams in the bank who work on um, various, you know, various other data science problems like this. Well, tell me about credit. I mean, that's something I don't know a lot about, but I, you know, I do know that we, you know, we've had various sort of like mortgage crises that, that I think were like, at least in the public, um, the publicly available information seemed to indicate that it was like too much machinery kind of leading to bad decisions. Like, do you, do you think that's accurate? And then like, how do you think about machine learning in that context? Well, this is, I, to be honest, I'm not, I'll, I'll speak on this from a, the perspective of somebody who was not a banking expert in the <laughs> 2007, 2008, you know, crisis, credit crisis. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, so this whole collateralized debt obligations, right? It's like, I think at the, at the, there's the tip of the spear, which is two people deciding to like, let's say I decide to lend you 10 bucks. Um, and I think about whether or not you're going to give that back to me. And I say, Meh. if he doesn't pay it, it's also okay. Right. Uh-huh. Um, all the way to, you know, 
I've got a set of mortgages and I'm a different institution who's going to pedge a strategy on some other institution's mortgages and I don't have insight into the quality of them. That's when you get into like the, you know, these sort of layered um, risk management strategies. Um, so when you go in terms of ML's engagement here, um, I think the big thing is the regulators are, have caught up. <laughs> you know, there's always a, the, some action happens in activities and then there's been a lot of regulatory oversight since 2007, 2008 to try to protect the economy by putting some limits on banks. Like there's a thing in Canada, we call it the uh, CET1 ratio, um, which is a ratio that's used to manage the liquidity that a bank has to sort of overall cash flow over risk weighted assets. So these are, um, something like a mortgage, right? The asset that a bank might hold that has some risk associated with it. And a bank has to manage that ratio in such a way that if something bad happens, there's still like relative stability. Um, if you think about adding an ML into this mix, right? So let's say we were to use ML to calculate that, the, the, the risk factor in the, in the denominator of that one equation. Um, they want a lot of transparency and explainability, right? So sure. there's there's a lot of governance oversight that's like, we're not just going to put in a black box neural network and see what happens. So, um, you know, there, yeah, high need to select models for those kind of use cases that are, that are quite transparent and audible and where you can clearly understand how input feature is leading to um, output. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of models do you end up using? Varies per use case and context. Um, so ranging from, you know, like the cash flow one that I talked about is a deep LSTM. Um, there's an LSTM backbone also in the reinforcement learning um, one for trade mm -hmm. execution. Two, sometimes I, I'm not sure if my team has done much, but there's a lot of decision trees. You know what I mean? There's a lot of XG boost models um, for some of the credit, the credit work. We have a governance tool that we've built that is optimized for um, decision trees. Because mm. um, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of models in the bank that, that use those. And this is like a single tree or like a boosted set of trees? Various per use case again. I see. Um, yeah, yeah. And and I guess, how do you, I mean, it, it seems like, um, you know, probably a lot of applications, but like mortgages specifically has like kind of a long history of like, yeah, at least racial inequality. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? Like, how do you, do you are you able to kind of like look at the models and get some sense if they're being fair? And, and how do you even, you know, define what... Uh, what fairness would mean? Yeah, great question. We haven't done any work on mortgage predictions um, in particular, but we have done some work with credit and um, we do fairness. There's a lot of fairness tests prior to putting a model into production. Um, at the bank, there's a group called Enterprise Model Risk Management. And there's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't actually know if there is like a preference for individual or group level fairness testing, I do know that um, there's in the, there's a tool we've built that focuses on individual fairness. And sorry, um, what would that mean? In individual fairness versus group fairness? Yeah, so group fairness is um, if you've got two groups where a group is defined by some similarity on a, a feature, right? Um, let's take the example of race. Right. So you've got, you know, the black, the black group and the white group. Um, the group level fairness is going to be is the error rate on the black group proportionate to the error rate on the white group um, for some prediction task. Uh -huh. um, if you go into individual level fairness, it's like if you have a set of features that are similar to my set of features, then if I get a $5,000 loan, you too get a $5,000 loan. So we have tools, but I, I still believe there's a decent amount of subjective interpretation that goes into like, well, what are we, what, like, what aspects are we trying to calibrate as fair? Yeah. Um, I so, mean, sometimes yeah. it seems to me with machine learning, it kind of forces us to be more clear about what we mean by fairness. And, and that can, you know, that just, just the, the, the way it's like easier to kind of quantify, I guess, like the unfairness sort of leads to um, a lot of debate, right? Like, you know, because it's, it's, it, I mean, how do you, how do you account for features that are correlated with um, like group, 
uh, group fairness, right? It seems like always like challenging, right? How, like to what, what does it mean to really prove that your model is being completely fair? It seems like a hard, hard thing to to rigorously define. Although I'm sure a lot. Of, I mean, we should get people who thought about it deeply on this on this podcast for sure. On the podcast, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the last I checked, there were 21 current interpretations, like technical interpretations of what fair means. Wow. Um, <laughs> So is there a, a lot list of where do, do we have a link that you could, you could get yeah, it? I can definitely find it. I, there's a paper awesome. from like, two, this is like from 2019. So maybe it's been or something like that, but yeah, I definitely send the link after, after this call. And yeah, I've seen things like at the, at the bank, there was one where, you know, proc, these proxy correlations, you might want to say, we don't want to discriminate by uh, gender. Mm-hmm. It's one for like sort of a business loan, I remember. And, um, but they kept in the business code type. So it was like restaurant, retail, manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. And one of them was beauty and spas. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it happens, you know, X, I don't know, some very high percentage of the proportion in Ontario uh, that are beauty and spa owners are women. So there's mm. this proxy encoded. So they, they sneak up all the time, right? So it's, I think it's right. also kind of like, if you really dig into it, it's, it, there's, you can keep going and uncover these potentially unfair variables. So, right, right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what? What? I mean, it's, I. I think we found some other um, interesting applications that you've talked about or your teams talked about, like a, a text to SQL database interface. Would you? Would you want to talk about that at all? So, yes, yeah, so we built this tool called we called Allen, which was a language, a listening answering neural network. I think is what the uh, acronym stood for in the beginning. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's a text to SQL interface. So basically, um, user comes in, poses a question, like you know find the highest rated stocks in my portfolio or something like that. Uh And uh, the the system takes that query, goes into an SQL database, and um, one parses from a natural language utterance into something that's a little bit more structured, so it looks like a SQL field. Mm -hmm. And then two, can actually go and compute the operation and output an answer. Um, So, you know, Google is the stock that has the highest rated portfolio, whatever it was that I said is the potential question. Right, right. And so how did you frame that even as a, as a machine learning problem? Like, like, how did you get training data? Did you view it as like an NLP, um, like a sequence to sequence model type thing? Or how did you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the, the person on the team who built it, Yan Shui, would be better equipped to answer it than I. Um, but it was framed that way. So framed as a um, sequence to sequence mapping problem. When we started the application, transformers hadn't really taken off yet, but midway they mm. had. And um, it ended up being sort of this, uh, how can we adapt transformers to very small data sets? Because we have very small, like there's close to no training data mapping natural utterance to extremely structured like pseudo SQL. <laughs> Um, so we, we built this, we kind of bootstrapped this pseudo SQL database and, uh, had a bunch of labelers, labelers come in and be like, yes, this is what, this is what this, it was sort of a pick list. It was like, if you say this question, does it mean X, Y, or Z? I see. Um, and so, and they labeled the pick list and we had that as our, you know, bootstrap training data set and, uh, decided on the application because there's a lot of SQL databases in the bank. Um, and in a lot of, you know, large enterprises and often you've got like a handful of folks who are the analysts who are called upon to go and like do these queries and find, um, find answers. They'll build dashboards like a Tableau type dashboard where that's sort of like commonly posed questions. They're kind of like FAQs, right? Mm-hmm. Where it makes sense to automate and, like every month you see the chart, um, but our original hypothesis was there's probably lots of long tail questions that it doesn't make sense to program, but that would be really nice. But you also don't want to have sort of call in the data analyst to to do the work on. So can we just have people ask those questions to the right, right. to the tools? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, I guess switching gears a little bit, I was hoping to hear a little bit about your career and how you came to this really interesting job. I mean, I think you talk about being a um, you know coming up through humanities, although I think. You do have a math degree, uh, which is, you know, a kind of a technical side of humanities, and um, and then you did a, a grad school in in, in um, uh, comparative literature, right? Which is a little bit of an interesting switch, maybe. Although I, I feel like I had a couple friends in college that did math and comp lit, but I, I was always sort of struck by that. I wonder if you could talk about 
you know, kind of what you're thinking at the time and how that informs your, um, your work today. Yeah, great. I'm glad you noticed that I also have a math background because people often are like, how does, you know, literature and then machine learning. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, but I did do a lot of work in linear algebra. So at least I, I can imagine, you know, functions. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I, I wish it were, I, I had a master plan, <laughs> but I didn't have a master plan. Uh, I, uh, I actually intended originally to be a physics and philosophy major. Those were mm. the things that interested me most. And uh, I, I, I was kind of a klutz in the lab. I really didn't like the lab. So I was like, you know what? No, this physics stuff I'm just going to do. I'm going to do the part where you don't have to go into the lab and just do math. Um, and then uh, I, I always loved, though, humanities. And I spent my junior year abroad in Paris. And I didn't have to take any math courses because I had enough sort of standing credits. So I took courses in philosophy, film, literature, and I, I really loved it. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I decided to change my major my fourth year in college and instead of just doing math, do a double major in math and complet. Um, mm. And uh, the good thing about complet is that it's kind of, well, the good and bad thing. The bad thing is that it kind of lacks identity as a discipline. Um, it's kind of like a grab bag of like, you know, it used to be, if you like, so why comparative? It used to be, um, imagine you take a theme like love and then you say, how do the French write about it? How do the Germans write about it? And you find these sort of cultural overlaps, which was the comparison. Mm -hmm. um, as the discipline has evolved, it's kind of become like some people focus on, you know, philosophy and literature. Some people do cultural studies. Some people do rigorous sort of history of a national literature. So I, the ambiguity was good for somebody like me because it was kind of like, sure, you want to do math, history of philosophy, history of literature, languages, you know, semiotic. Great. You know, great place for you. So so I went into it. Um, I really liked languages and I thought it provided a lot of freedom uh, mm. to explore. Um, I wrote my dissertation on uh, 17th century epistemology. So basically what was knowledge at the time um, and uh, focused on Descartes, Leibniz, um, Newton. So sort of the old dead white guys and uh Classic math guys. Classic math guys, exactly. Yeah, I know a lot about 17th century math that's like not really as relevant today. Um, Ooh, tell me you know. some stuff about 17th century math. Oh, so like favorite things in 17th century math. So I mean, the beginning—it's a dawning of calculus, right? Yeah. So you've got like, you've got Newton. Newton in particular is really, um, really fascinating. Well, Leibniz and Newton, both of them. So like Leibniz was—he had this thing called cogitatio caeca, um, blind thought. He really thought that basically we could just let the symbols do all the work and it doesn't matter if we can visually represent some mathematical concept or if like it really has a tie to the real world. Mm -hmm. It was just like, let's go calculate stuff. And um, with that sort of focus on formalism, he did a lot of he had a lot of development of like thinking about, you know, infinitesimal ratios and some of the mechanisms that go into making differentiation and integration possible that just kind of worked. Um, Newton on the flip side kind of started off more on this formal track, but then he was influenced by a bunch of um, this sort of traditional focus on Greek math that was really prominent in, in 17th century England. And there they were like, you have to visualize, like you have to, it all comes back to geometry. Like geometry started with farmers out trying to measure, measure distances in a field and like it needs to be grounded. And he grappled a lot with thinking about the gap between a limit and zero, mm. right? And you see that through the Principia. I wrote a paper at one point on his notion of, they called them first and last ratios, which were basically like proto limits. Mm. Um, and he like, he, he, he kind of held himself back because he was really so focused on keeping things tangible, mm. um, which I, I found really interesting between, you know, the two of them. So yeah, one... 17th century math tidbit. Did you kind of continue this, this line of research in grad school or was it something else? I continued the line of research on, um, you know, 17th century math and philosophy in grad school, wrote a dissertation that, you know, five people have read on this topic. Um, and uh, yeah, and then afterwards, basically, you know, with complete, so word, word of the wise for any listeners who decide to be complete grad students, um, there's not a lot of complex departments. There's a lot of national language departments. And so, and there's not a lot of ability. Like if I, I think if I had been able to become a philosophy, like history of philosophy professor, I probably would have stayed in academic, but I was sort of 
prepared to be like a French literature, 18th century professor or 17. And I was like, I don't know if that's really me. Mm. And there's not a lot of jobs. So it's like, you know, do I go to Nebraska and fight for my assistant professorship or do I go into tech? Um, Cause I was at, out at Stanford. So just decided to switch careers. Um, and I think something though, that like, you know, what is the humanities training? Does that, is that still with me besides having arcane knowledge that not many people want to talk about, but I'm glad you do. Um, <laughs> normally it's a liability for me at work. Cause like I get feedback on performance reviews that are like, Catherine's really great, but sometimes she like goes off on these philosophical digressions and we're not really sure why. Um, but uh, I think one thing that I've brought with me is I was, I trained as like an intellectual historian in grad school. And so if you're a philosopher often today, you're like evaluating arguments for like, is this right? Right. Mm-hmm. Is this true? And then there's, you know, people come in and say, well, there's no such thing as truth in the first place. Everything's relative. Um, I think as an intellectual historian, I didn't care if Descartes was right about, you know, the motion of planets in space. I was really interested in understanding what he thought he was thinking. Like, why this? What was he reading? What was happening around the time? Like, what sort of staying, all right, I'm reading this as a 21st century reader, and I'm coming with all of my prejudices and predispositions of thinking like somebody who's on the internet and viewing the world in a certain way and thinks that, you know, universal gravitation is second nature, but for him, it was not. So it's, I think there was a lot of training in like um, suspending disbelief, sort of ensuring that one didn't bring in one's own subjective predispositions and like really understanding a foreign thinker. Um, Mm. And I actually think that's really good training for product management. Mm. Um, I think it's really good training for executive work, like, cause you're constantly in situations like with a customer, it's, it's not, here's how I want to use my cash flow forecasting app. It's there's going to be a distribution of millions of customers who are like totally different from me. Um, so it's, I, I guess I'm always approaching problems from the perspective of like, I, I'm not going to assume that there's one right answer. And I'm not going to assume that this person thinks any, this is like similar from me or comes from a similar place. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's been really good, like good training in, in, and doing product work eventually. I mean, you didn't just sort of study like any, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. conflict. It's like, it's very kind of like, like different technical points of view. And I, I feel like you, you see that in ML too, right? Like, I feel like there's this, I, I had a boss who always said he preferred to hire biologists over physicists. And I think what he meant by that is he liked people that sort of didn't really try to like figure out the underlying structure of models, but just sort of like examine them from the outside of like what they, what they do. Right. So like, just sort of like take this like kind of open mind, you know, we're not going to make assumptions, but then I I think about Newton actually. And it's like, I feel like it seems to me, like you tell me actually, it seems like Newton made this kind of like leap into like a lot of structure and really, so he must've wanted to put like an underlying structure on the world, like really badly <laughs> to come up with such a, you know, <laughs> such an amazing structure. Um, and I, I wonder if, I mean, do you think Newton doing ML, it would have driven him nuts that like we, we kind of have this <laughs> point of view of like <laughs> looking at the models from the outside and just examining what they do and maybe not worrying about exactly how they work and making them more and more complicated. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there probably would be aspects of ML that would have driven me crazy. Um, There's other aspects where I think there's some like kinship or, you know, Protestant thinking. So, um, and I'm influenced here by one of my dear friends and mentors, um, a man named George Smith. He's a professor at Tufts who, um, if you really want to know about Newton, like talk to George, like he's the guy. Um, he's taught this course on uh, basically how Newton changed the standards for high quality evidence for like 25 years and really knows a lot on this topic. But one of the things I learned from him is that um, Newton always assumed that the system that he was trying to model was infinitely more complex than the, the deductive, you know, mathematical model that he could apply to it. And so there's, um, there's, a lot in sort of the Newtonian scientific paradigm that's like, all right, we're going to put this hypothesis out there, this deductive model, then we're going to make observations and there's going to be a gap between what we observe and what we've modeled. And, you know, the the progress of this paradigm is to continuously see where there's a, to, to, to watch that gap and close it when possible, you know, by refining our mathematical model, but sometimes realize where, 
it's just completely off the mark and we might need to sort of shift, shift our thinking. And so to that extent, I think there's some, there's more affinity within sort of the ML mindset than like a, a, a sort of traditional, like rules-based computer programming mindset, or even the GoFi type mindset, right? And like, we can sort of, as long as we can articulate the, the, the structure of the thinking, we can, we can model the world. Um, what is a so GoFi yeah. type mindset? Like the go, good old fashioned AI oh, sort of oh, expert systems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> nice, um, I didn't know that acronym. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'd say, uh, I don't know, it's always been a plight of mine. Like definitely spent a lot of my time in Complet working on rationalist, hyper-structured um, 17th century thinkers and drove my Complet colleagues crazy because I kind of came from the math background and my papers were, were like proofs versus like more exploratory. <laughs> so but I sometimes, I, I envy the ML mindset too because I think coming from more of that like always trying to prove things. It's not always the best, best mm. approach to running a company either, you know, so. <laughs> Do you think Descartes would have had a different point of view on ML? Okay, so this is another like loose analogy, but basically this whole like, you know, the, the famous, I think therefore I am cogito ergo sum. Um, he phrased it that way in 1637, a discourse on method, which is sort of like, he has this like, here's my method. And then he, he runs it through three examples, one of which being the geometry. Um, one was on- could, Sorry, could you explain what that means? I, I've heard that a zillion times, but I don't think I know the implication of I think, therefore I am. Yeah, so, okay. So when he first stated it, he, what he was trying to do was big, bold 17th century work, prove that God exists A, but then B, sort of put forth a, a new way of thinking and doing science that was cleaner and upon which one could actually feel like they had sort of like they could believe these statements and propositions and truths versus the predecessors, which were like always like citing the ancients. So it's like, why is something true? It's true because Aristotle said it was true versus like, it's true because I have used logic to come to a, a propositional type of truth. Hmm. So when he was starting his, all right, let's prove that God exists. He says, well, where do I start? Why don't I start by proving that, you know, I, there's, there's some, there's some clear point that I can stand upon where it's like, I know that this is what truth looks like. And so the, the cogito ergo sum was, was that point where it was like, basically he's like, no matter how hard I try, if I try to pretend I don't exist, there's gotta be somebody there doing that thinking, therefore I must exist. So it's kind of this proof mm -hmm. by contradiction, like, I see. you know, there's gotta be some voice there. Um, What's interesting is he rewrote this in his second attempt in it. Um, he got rid of the thinking. So he didn't say cogito. He just said, I am, I exist. Um, mm. And then he said, and if you want to understand how this truth works, he, he didn't use these words, but you know, my paraphrase, he's basically like, go sit in a room and meditate for days, like do it, like repeat it and do this for like 30 days. And eventually you will you will have trained your mind to think clearly. Um, so I looked at that and I was like, well, that's different. <laughs> that's not quite what I thought Descartes was about. <laughs> um, like go sit in a room and repeat things, you know, until you, you train your mind to think that way. So that was really interesting to me. And this is a loose analogy, but I think there's something sort of similar to supervised learning when it's, it's like, is this a dog? Is this a cat? It's just like, show me 50 examples and repeat until it, until it becomes like you've established the input output pattern. Um, that's not really there, but I think it's kind of there. And I think it's kind of interesting that there's sort of this like intellectual foundation for supervised learning in Descartes. So. Although it seems like with Descartes, it's like, there's maybe no input if you're meditating. Am I yeah, there's no input besides your own training your mind to like rewire. It's like rewire your mind to think this way. I see. <laughs> you know? I see. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Do you then have thoughts on AI being sentient? Like, do you have opinions on, I guess, things like the, the Turing test or um, what are the, those classic ones that you learned in your first AI class on like the, the room with the person in it and the books like doing Chinese or something? Yeah. The Chinese, the John Searle Chinese room. Yeah. Argument. Yeah. 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 To be honest, not really. I've always, like, I find the Turing test interesting conceptually, but I struggle to see 
I struggle with the arguments that are like, you know, the sort of singularity type arguments like computation is rising and the models are more complex and these models are going to get to the point where they're, they come into consciousness. I, um, I just don't, I don't, I don't really see it. <laughs> um, do you like, I, I don't know. Well, we have this existence proof with humans, right? That seems like consciousness kind of comes from some type of process. So it seems to me like, unless you think there's something really like, you know, something like God in there, in the physics, somehow there must, it, it sort of must come from like increasingly complicated computation, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I sort of fall into the materialist. I, while I spent a lot of time with the 17th century philosophers, <laughs> I uh, don't share the the sense of, you know, the soul and there's a God in there that makes things different. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but it's interesting. There's still that gap, you know, between, and I don't know if it's that the plasticity of our neurons, the fact that there's just thousands of, you know, mil- billions, trillions of um, very plastic processes going on in there. Or if it's like a Dan, I don't know if you know, Dan Dennett type argument where the self is a, basically a, a user illusion, right? In the same way that we interface with, um, you know, I'm looking at you on a Zoom screen right now, my, my iOS operating system, which makes it easy for me to engage with the computer versus seeing the, 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 the nitty gritty insides. Maybe it is a, a useful illusion you know, ev- ev- that we've gained through evolution, but that is not, it's not really real. I, I, I kind of buy that argument. Um, so it's all, so, it's a red, basically consciousness is a red herring is, is kind of what that argument would be. So are you the kind of person that would, would get into like a transporter that would like disintegrate your body and reassemble it somewhere else? <laughs> would, would you feel like that's a safe thing to do? <laughs> there's, there's some very strong opinions on different sides of that at, at weights and biases. <laughs> question I've never really thought about that it's I might change now that I have a son um you know now that I'm a mom I'd say if you met me a year ago maybe I'd say like (laughs) yeah sure but now it's almost like would that mean that there's some implication on my relationship to my child I'm not sure I want that yeah that's funny I have a small daughter too but I think I've my whole life I would just never get in that machine (laughs) to me it seems incredibly (laughs) unsafe I I don't know if I can justify it but I just would not do that all right, we we always end with two two questions um, that um, are a little more on the practical side, but this is really fun. Um, that so so what is I guess what's a topic in ML that um, you think is understudied or underappreciated? So I don't know if it's understudied, but I I think it's it has been underappreciated and now is becoming more appreciated. But this is um, causal inference, so like the Judea Pearl mm. do calculus type work. Mm-hmm. This is um, Something we're starting to really look into at the bank because because of this need for sort of more interpretable models um, mm. and lots of conditional probabilities where if we could, you know, understand what happens in one variable and how that relates to another variable, um, it'd be really, you know, really useful for sort of macroeconomic modeling. So that's, mm. it's something that I think it also is, it's a topic that a person like me is going to be interested in because it's like, philosopher candy as well like there's lots of inter you know interdisciplinary approaches to this problem um what is a cause um if we can even really define it well and you know it's represented formally in the in machine learning in one particular way but i think there's i think it's going to be interesting over the next couple of years to see these sort of traditional causal inference methods interacting with deep learning and the deep mm. learning community so that's that's one one thing that we're I, i'm personally excited about but also borealis is looking into these days Interesting. Super cool. Um, is there like a paper that you could point people to if they were interested in learning more about? That? Yeah, yeah. I, I'll send a link after. Um, there's a paper recently. I know Elias Berenboim, who's one of the, who's one of Pearl's students and he's at Columbia. He was a co-author. Yashua Benjio is a co-author. And then there's two others that I know mm-hmm. less well. Um, that's all about sort of deep learning and causal inference. It's probably a great place to start. Cool. The, the final question we always ask, and, and you've seen so many different applications, I, I think you'll have a really interesting perspective on this, is basically like kind of going from like wanting to, to build a model for some purpose and kind of getting it deployed in production, actually doing that purpose. Like, where do you feel like there's the, the biggest painful or most painful bottlenecks? 
yeah, there, there's often a lot, <laughs> better to say the most painful. So I think, um, I think at the highest level, it's really deep integration into the full business process. So, and this is really coming also from an enterprise ML perspective um, versus like a sort of ML for a software company. But um, I've seen tons of projects fail where you might have a good, like given a task, build a model. Um, if, it's, if it's just handed over to the business without considerations of like, all right, well, where's, where does the production data sit? Um, how do we get that data from that environment to the environment where our model sits to, to do inference? There's always questions on like just the time frame. Or is this, you know, is this batch monthly, weekly, real time? Um, make and making sure I've seen stuff where like there's we think we can easily do a batch output, like it's just monthly, you know, output a set of predictions that are gonna go into some call center list. But there's like some nuance in the process where the third week of every month they do this to the data and that's going to mess this up and so it's it's always in the details of like what the what that full flow will look like and then the third yeah with the business process is all right now you've output the prediction but how does the process change because if, if people just use it and like they continue to do what they're doing i don't think you're really taking advantage of right now that we have this like we can shift our approach let's say it's a call center automation thing like we can shift the number of people we have on staff at a given time. We can collect the following new data to improve the process in some way. So I think you have to think about it holistically, right? In terms of like, what's the end result? Where does it sit? How do you measure it? So that's kind of all of the production ML pipeline, but I actually think it's, it's all there and like it all matters. So <laughs> Spoken like someone who's done a bunch of production pipelines, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. That's really fun. If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it. 